0: Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts, If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is October the 20th, 2023, and my guest is Matthew Queen. Matthew is the owner of the Queen firm and the author of the book Modern Captive Insurance. If you told me two years ago that I'd get as excited about insurance regulation as I am now, I would have nodded my head. But regular listeners to this podcast know, however, that uh, how important legal systems are for progress and f- how important insurance is to what we're doing in prospect. Right. So, and Matthew is exactly the kind of person I was looking for who can explain this to me arcane subject and help us think of the enormous opportunities we can unlock um, by using kind of the power of insurance markets, particularly captive insurance. So, Matthew, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. So, I agree with you that it's unusual to look at insurance as one of the most innovative areas of the economy. But back in 2007, it would have been a tough sell to get people to start talking about the fundamentally illusory nature of fiat currency. And yet nowadays, when you talk about Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrencies, that's common knowledge. So I'm optimistic that everyone here is going to be interested in hearing the evolution that we're seeing in insurance as well, which I think generally parallels the libertarian mindset that we see with cryptocurrencies. So I specialize in a form of insurance called captive insurance. Captive insurance is where a company creates a wholly owned insurance company. But I don't want to get into legalistic stuff. Let's talk about what captives are. It's a bank account. It's a bank account into which you put money, and that money is allocated for various risks. So as an example, if you're a, uh, a doctor or you're a, a practice of doctors, you may have medical malpractice. So you can go pay CNA, you can go pay MedPro, or you can start your own wholly owned insurance company. So if you were paying a million dollars in premiums to CNA, now you're paying a million dollars of premiums to your own bank account. And this bank account is owned by a corporation which has an insurance license. It's not like some goofball, weird thing license. It's uh, there's 38 states in the USA that have uh, captive insurance legislation, and captives run billions of dollars of premium through the, uh, the markets. They can purchase reinsurance. Uh, they can uh, get uh, ratings like uh, AM Best or or Demotech, which is common with what you see with the reinsurers and any admitted carriers you've heard of. So it's an it's an off-the-beaten-path off form of insurance that is highly entrepreneurial by its nature. These things have been around for large companies since at least the 50s. A guy named Fred Reese put one together for a mining operation back in the 50s. And the Internal Revenue Service has always viewed them with suspicion because in their mind, they're like, wait a second, you know, where's the risk going? go from one pocket to the other. You're paying a million bucks to CNA. Now you're just paying a million dollars a premium to yourself. That seems like a deal. In fact, it's too good of a deal. Because think about it. If you, if you have a business expense of a million bucks and it goes out to CNA, but you then have a claim for a million bucks, that's CNA's problem. You transferred the risk. The IRS was saying, wait a second, if you have a million dollars in this bank account, which you allegedly call a capital insurance company, like what happens if you have claims? Well, the answer is you pay the claims like any other insurance carrier. But if you don't pay the claims, that sucking sound you heard was the tax. The 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 the, uh, the, the tax revenue is going down. It's actually very powerful. So the million dollar tax deduction for for uh, premiums, and then whatever you don't pay out in claims, like let's assume you're a good doctor, get to keep all that money. But wait, there's more. If it's less than $2.65 million in gross certain premium, you don't even have to pay federal income tax on it. You just have to pay an, uh, 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 taxes on the investment income. So that's a huge opportunity. So obviously, these were leveraged by large corporations, General Motors, Amazon, um, all your Fortune 500 have multiple categories. Disney has one called Buena Vista. Disney has another one, actually, just for its parks. So you got all these big co- companies, and they were writing well more than two point six five in gross and premium. Um, SpaceX has one. SpaceX has a really weird captive. When you're in the field of um, healthcare, your big uh, stakeholders are going to be things like uh, centers for Medicare and Medicaid services, or you may have to worry about things like HIPAA. Uh, when you shoot rockets in outer space. Their, their captive insurance company had to get uh, 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 certification and regulatory grace from the FAA. <laughs> I was sitting there thinking, I was like, oh yeah, you're right. You know, I never thought about it. Like, who governs the the, the skies? But yeah, the FAA co- controls everything from here to outer space. And their limits on their captive are enormous. It's uh, 100, 300 million So uh, if a rocket blows up and hits a and hits a, uh, a skyscraper, they could they could they could owe a hundred million. Per occurrence or $300 million in aggregate per year. Those are massive limits. Um, but the middle market is where captives have become very controversial because that $2.65 million limit creates a massive tax advantage. And the IRS has done everything they can to try to get rid of it, but uh, Congress likes it. And there's a good reason for it. When you have an insurance carrier, you have one in and two out. Okay, one in is the premium, that's the money you're paying in. The two out is claims and taxes. So in 1916 or 1920, somewhere near, Congress passed a, a tax reform that got rid of federal income tax for small insurance companies. And it's a very broadly written law because they had mutuals just falling apart, left and right. Farming mutuals weren't able to sustain themselves in the American West. And as a result, uh, Congress took action, but captives are insurance companies and where the IRS gets really up in arms is the audacity for people like you and me to start our own insurance companies. In other words, it's it's good for the rich people, but but don't really get in on it yourself. And what I'm proud of is an industry that's uh, very sophisticated that serves uh, entrepreneurs in um, probably the most risk uh, tolerant area of the world. These are people who are betting on themselves. It's doctors who haven't had a malpractice claim in five years. It's construction companies that are sick and tired of paying through the nose for, for worker to come when they never have accidents. It's, uh, skilled nursing facilities that take good care of old people. It's, um, it's, uh, commercial uh, offices in uh, Miami beach that have hurricane proof windows and, 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 flood treatments. And, and they're, they're sick and tired of financing, uh, bad actors in the market, so they self-insure formally through a captive. Where this dovetails with uh, uh, the, uh, the, the opportunities to prosper uh, is that there is a small international market for captive insurance. So a captive insurance company is a regulated entity, but it's also an international. They have Captain Thomas Isles in the Turks and Caicos, Guernsey, Jersey, the Cayman Islands, Bermuda, the Bahamas, Seychelles, Cook Islands. I could go on and on. It's a very common thing. You see them in Africa too. I think Namibia Nib- has a an a, a captive insurance domicile. So what what we've seen is competition in the market to try to bring captives into uh, into into countries. And I think there's good uh, there's good sense behind um, the captive insurance industry is a very low risk, high reward. Uh, opportunity for uh, state regulators. Um, every cap is going to pay a little bit in premiums taxes and they have annual filings, you've got all sorts of uh, various fees to the government. And you know, from the government standpoint, they're not too difficult to govern. You make sure they're solvent. They're not committing money laundering fraud, that sort of thing. And it's a relatively boring but stable way of amplifying uh, the, state, uh, the state revenues. So what you see is a dynamic and healthy market of, uh, mar- of uh, domiciles that are competing for the business. Um, I like many American states. Uh, Tennessee is great. Oklahoma is great. Uh, South Carolina does a good job. North Carolina does a good job. Vermont is the gold standard. Uh, and there's more beyond that. Just because I didn't say them doesn't mean they're not great. There's a lot of great ones out there. And when I say great, I mean, these, these regulators see the opportunity. They see, generally speaking, best-in-class entrepreneurs who are betting on themselves, who are getting a better deal for pricing risk to their own risk profile rather than paying for the risks of a whole bunch of other bad actors in the industry. And where I think Prospera is unique is that it has the ability to more or less govern itself. And as I understand it, it can also create its own banking solutions. Consequently, there is an opportunity there for Prospera to open up the doors, uh, to create a new domicile and I think the good news for Prospera is that in order to create a a good domicile for insurance, you don't need to, like, win the race to the bottom. In fact, I would, I would advocate against that. I would actually suggest making sure that you take a reasonable amount of premiums tax because what you see from the best domiciles, Vermont, Connecticut, Delaware, they're not free. I mean, there are places that don't charge very much money, but, you know... They take forever, you know. I mean, so I'm like, as as a business owner, would you rather pay another four or five thousand dollars per year for the ability to get your emails returned in two days, to yeah. to be able to speak with the regulator about nuances in our change of business plan, to be able to sit there and walk through problems like, hey, it looks like the claims kind of caught up with us a little bit. What are we going to do here? I mean, we talk through solutions. That's that's what money pays for. So there's um, there's an opportunity. To create a new domicile, I think where the American and to a large extent, the island markets, uh, struggle is with, uh, institutional. baggage. So I want to be very clear here that I'm very happy with the American domiciles and, and frankly, I've done business at Turks Caicos, a handful of offshore places, uh, like Anguilla and I've had a uh, fantastic experience. But I will say, nobody, and I mean nobody, is digital-friendly. So it's just strange things you have to do. Um, Some domiciles still require you to send in uh, notarized documents that have, like, the wet signature on the page. Like, you can't even send a PDF. Some places, uh, they only accept uh, uh, packages that, that have been sent via FedEx or UPS. Some places don't even have a website that aligns with the modern law. You have to literally go ask for an application to either become a captive manager or to create your own captive insurance company. So there's just a lot of low-hanging fruit for a tech-savvy, tech-forward domicile to show up and be able to offer a quick on-ramp for entrepreneurs to be able to in-house their own risk pair that with capital managers who can um, assist with the feasibility study, the actuarial, and do that in a digital way. Uh, again, when I say digital, I mean, pull in the loss runs, run the numbers, make sure that you know, we have a reasonable amount of gross and premium, a reasonable amount of, of statutory minimum capital, blah, blah, blah. You can do all of that electronically. There's really no reason for for any paper anymore. And there's and there's virtually no good reason for the incredible turnaround time that we see with some of these domiciles. And all the domiciles I've mentioned, fantastic, but there are a lot out there that just do not have enough people out there. And they do not have any ability to uh, do natural language processing, to try to hit the most important things. They're, they're looking through financial statements line by line. And it just creates so much slowdown that a change in business plan can take two weeks. Uh, An application can take eight weeks. It's just, it's it's not uh, easy to do business with some of these domiciles. So I think a a domicile that launches directly toward the, and in, 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 uh, digitizes virtually every aspect of governance is way ahead of the game, but it goes further than that. The actual governance of these things can largely be automated as well. When you go through captains, yeah, uh, documents. You know, the big things we're looking for, like I said, beyond fraud and money laundering is what's their solvency? What's the what's the claims, how the claims developing in relation to the uh, to the to the pro forma and the actuarial that was filed. There's really no reason a human has to do that. I mean, if the pro forma says we expect a 33 percent loss ratio, it comes in at 45. Well, I mean, there should be an ability for the data to be input on the front end so that it immediately is caught by the system. That's then escalated to, um, some sort of reviewer who then asks simple questions on an as necessary basis. So what that does is it turns the governance of captives into, to largely a, um, an audit of, of data that's, that's being produced. And then from the audit, I mean, if all you're doing is looking at six things as opposed to 6,000 things, you now cut down the time to review the captives from days or weeks down to minutes. And that just means that the capital domicile is going to be hyper-efficient. It's going to be able to sit there and respond to the markets much, much faster. Now, do all this and then pair it with maybe some business partners who are helpful in terms of placing capital. Because, you know, you don't get something for nothing. You need to have, you know, what happens if your insurance company pays claim on the first day? You need to have capital in the bank to start a captive. So if we have capital partners who can assist with getting these things off the ground through surplus notes, or if we have reinsurance partners that are interested in providing um, uh, a market for reinsurance that specializes in captives and is comfortable with uh, these kind of mid-market risks, then you got something really special. You got something that nobody else has. There's absolutely no reason that you could not dit- automate a significant chunk, like 60 or 70% of what the domiciles do. So when I say that the administrative baggage is holding back the domiciles, the reality is that, at least in the United States, all of your captive domiciles are going to be in a department of insurance. So how do you how do you do deal with that? They've got so many things there, ancient systems, systems that may not even talk to each other. You've got an incredible amount of privacy and security issues because it's the government. So where Prosper differs is that it's effectively starting from ground up. So you know, if I were if I were architecting a, a, a new captive insurance domicile, first thing I would try to figure out is, all right. What is best in class technology, security or, or IT infrastructure look like? That's really where you spend your money so that you know that whatever gets submitted to the reviewing party is under lock and key. OK, so that's that's number one. Uh, number two, what are the things that like these specific things we're going to look for in every single captive? Then where do we want to find that? More often than not, we're talking about what are the financial statements you want to look at? What are the ratios you want to see? What are the, what are the things we want to track? Make sure that the financials are standardized, make sure that they're, they're all submitted in the same way, and then have a way of comparing the pro forma to the submitted financials. That is a chunk right there. That's not everything, That's not everything but that is a chunk. And then pair that with a, a vibrant banking community that is interested in uh, the the alternative lending space and you got yourself a winner.
0: Yeah, and to add to that, uh, to anyone listening also to you, I think the great the thing about it is that you could build it, right? So all you would need is basically um, some form of approval, right? So the kind of regulatory codes that would be required to build that solution, you know, say you have like a, you know, develop a captive insurance in one click or whatever solution, uh, the regulation on the back end is something that's subject to election, right? So you can write that regulation yourself and the only thing you need is then is approval. Then you can effect, in effect be that jurisdiction or that provider um, sort of of that jurisdictional product of that captive insurance.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, and I want to be, I wanna be uh, charitable to the, uh, the compliance and regulatory and uh, the captive insurance industry the race to the bottom was one years ago. There are plenty of places you can go where cheap is what you get. But cheap is what you get. You know, you get what you pay for. And that turnaround time and the uh, variability of professionalism between the domiciles is no joke. You know, it can be real frustrating if you send something down and four weeks later, they send back an email saying, we just got around to it. Can you send, you know, some documents that you've already sent before? That's I mean, that's just, it's interrogating. And then, you know, imagine over here off screen, you have some client who's ready to put, you know, a new line of business into the captive and they're, you're screwing around with the regulator that's asking the same questions twice. I've I've lived through that. That's not particularly fun. So what can we do? Well, there's only three things. You can be better, you can be faster, you can be cheaper. And I don't believe in cheaper. I don't think that the the... Minuscule savings. So, so again, talk about a small captive program. What's small? Small would be a million bucks. Okay, so I mean, unfortunately, I would love to be able to deliver captives for the for small businesses, but it's uh, we just aren't there yet as an industry. I, I haven't been able to figure out that solution. But for mid market businesses, yeah, yeah, I mean, about a million dollars is where um, kind of small captives going to be. So if we're talking about saving three to five thousand dollars a year in premium taxes. I go into a crappy domicile. Uh, that's that's not moving. That's not moving the needle for me. I mean, we're yeah. talking. That's that's literally um, um, immaterial in the world of accounting. So I think you focus on being better and you focus on being faster. The 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 reinsurance markets are in a vaguely similar situation where you're seeing some technology entrance to the marketplace um, starting to deliver faster solutions because reinsurance can take three to six months to place routinely for, for normal accounts. When you start into the exotic stuff, I mean, new programs can take a year to put together. And there's no really good solution or no really good reason for it. Um, You know, you got people spread across the planet, different holidays. But I mean, it's just, it's wild how slow things can be. And so we're seeing, we're seeing uh, the insurance industry overall start to see people put together like, oh, wow, you know, if I could do something in Three weeks as opposed to three months, I may actually have some alpha there. And that's what I'm advocating for Prospera is, you know, if there's interest in creating a domicile, don't worry about the price. Okay. People will pay for fast. People will pay for smart. I and mean, that's kind of an evolution of my thought. Um, I would say probably three or four years ago, you know, I thought I had in mind was just, you know, get, get cheap, get, get, get loose, you know. You know, there's there's ratios that you can get crazy with. So when I say ratios, like the premium to surplus ratio, how much money do you have to have in the bank before you get a license? And there are some domiciles that'll say you need know, a 10 to one ratio. So if you're writing a million bucks in premium, you'll have to be a hundred grand in the bank. Most actuaries would vomit. Just straight up call you crazy. It's they prefer to see something closer, three to one, three hundred grand in the bank for a million, a million in premium. And I've actually come around on that thought process. The capital light models are uh brittle and we've seen some real problems in the insure tech markets. Um there's any number of insure tech carriers that have been distressed over the years. And it's largely because they don't have enough capital. They're overly reliant on reinsurance. And encouraging those kinds of behaviors is not beneficial to the market. It's a short-term solution to get some small players in the game, but insurance is just not something that works unless you have scale. And that's uh, once again it kind of amplifies my my discussion from earlier. Why can't I small business captive insurance insurance is tough. It just it is it is what it is. I'm sorry, I, I, and I don't want it to be that way. One day I'll have a stroke of insight. On uh, today is not that day. So um, I think the, the the new domiciles can be uh, aggressive in terms of capitalization. I think they can be reasonable in terms of fees. And if you're turning around licenses in days, not weeks. If you're turning around changes in business plans in hours, not days. That's how you sit there and entice people. That's how you get something that's really different in the market. And it would be difficult for uh the traditional domiciles. And I'm not talking about fly fly off the wall domiciles. I'm talking Vermont, Delaware, Connecticut. I mean, if you're if you have that kind of flexibility and the credibility, then it's 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 just it's a different market. Um, so when I say credibility, you know, it is it is. The responsibility for the regulator to make sure that the, that the insurance industry is uh, uh, healthy. So you need to prevent insolvency. You just need to make sure that the money is where it's supposed to be. You need to make sure that these things are being operated like like true companies, insurance in the commonly accepted sense. And that is a temptation to to let that go. I've seen some domiciles let that go. All that does is just create. It, 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 it encourages the smaller-minded opportunities to get to the domicile. If you just hold the line and say, "No, no, we actually want like real businesses here, and we're not interested in your fly-by-night things," you'll 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 send a message, and I think that's a very positive message. Because I'll tell you what, that the uh, the short-term gain from these small-ball players is just not worth it. I saw one; they had what's called a producer-owned reinsurance company to pluck generally speaking these are made for car dealerships so if you've ever bought a car you know there's a whole uh process they will try to upsell you on warranties and financial products and that sort of thing and act, actually that's where the oftentimes the, the car dealership makes more money there than on the sale of the car but these things are designed to be the whole point of a work is to just do like some little reinsurance of like a little car warranty it's no big deal what this guy was doing was he was creating porks and then he was running like a whole gosh darn liability program through it. Putting crazy stuff, workers' comp, benefits, like real insurance. But the thing is like porks are not governed; They're explicitly supposed to be small so they don't have annual audits, they don't have actuarials. It, this guy just started a bank account in some nondescript island. It was just stuffing it full of cash, taking out cash for himself and paying claims. And then he came to my firm back when I was with a different company, and said, hey, um, I got to do some filings at the Internal Revenue Service. Can, 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 you, can you look at this for me? And I said, my God, man, this is fraud. And he did like the word fraud. He had other words to use for it. And uh, long story short, I just called that one dead on rival. And I'll tell you what, I mean, the regulator um, uh, eventually found out, not from, not from us, but I mean, he, he had to disclose what was going on. And, you know, the regulator's making like $700 a year on this guy. And he was running, in my estimation, about a $5 million insurance fraud. I mean, fortunately, no one got hurt in that. But like, no one's being helped with that. That's that's not worth the time. And there's, and there's thousands of bad actors out there like that that you'll attract unless. Unless you come right out there and say, look, here's where we are. We see an opportunity here to earn business from Lloyds of London. We see an opportunity here to earn business from... Uh, New York state, Florida, California, we're going to treat you well. We're going to, we're going to digitize everything we can. We're going to provide We're going to outsource all the, you know, the human interaction with the best in class players, and we're going to do so at the speed of modern business. That's that, that to me is
0: what the the market is like. Okay. So many interesting things that I'd like to double click on, um, I want to zoom out for a bit and and ask, what is insurance in the first place and why is it important for functioning markets? Insurance is the oil
1: for the engine of capitalism. You cannot have capital investments if you don't know what the return on equity is. And the return on equity means you need to be able to price out the risk of loss. And if the risk of loss is infinite, then you'll never go anywhere. There's a reason that the government exists. Like you, I mean, go go through history. Who found America? It was Columbus, uh, you know, financed by Queen Isabella. Um, we could we could go uh, you know, who discovered the west coast. I mean, that was uh, uh, Lewis Clark, who was financed by President Lincoln. Uh, Magellan, financed by one of the loyal families. The government goes out and makes the maps. Then after the government goes out and makes the maps, it is then incumbent. Upon the private sector to then look at the maps to start to price out, okay, this is a tar pit, that's that's a trap. What are the odds of us falling into that trap? How much is it going to cost for us to go get all those resources over there? And it's really not complicated. Resource is worth X, the cost is y. All right So we have you know, there's our, there's our return. So that to me is where where the, the, the private sector and the government work together. And and insurance provides the ability for equity to be able to make its way to the right places, or really capital, to make its way to the right places. So I guess where I differ from a lot of libertarians, I'm not an anarchist, and I, and I definitely see the value of government, regulation, uh, fairness. Uh, those are all uh, relevant considerations, which makes sense because my primary job is to work with regulators all the time. So if I thought that they were, not doing a good job in the world, probably take a different job. The uh, the same is true for banking. Uh, The same is true for uh, many other industries where you have uh, so much power uh, loaded into such a a relatively small number of uh, of players in the market. Uh, Now, insurance is not quite as oligopolistic as banking. Banking is governed by a handful of two big sale banks, and it's a mess. Uh, Insurance is actually very different. So in 1945, the American government got one right. They passed this thing called the the McCarran-Ferguson Act, and it said that the business of insurance is state law. So I want to be clear here. Uh, McCarran and Ferguson were the same sleazy senators, just like we have today. They weren't weren't anything special. But uh, they stumbled into it because in 1944, the Supreme Court said insurance is subject to interstate commerce. Now, the federal government can regulate insurance, which is a, a backlash from the way that historically, and all the states, departments of insurance got together and said, um, that's going to ruin our, 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 our grift. So why don't we uh, uh, encourage Congress to delegate the business of insurance to the states? And they did. Well, as a consequence of that, there is no oligopoly in insurance. I believe the largest insurance carrier by premium volume is State Farm with 15% of the homeowners market. There's no definition of oligopoly or monopoly that hinges around 15% being allocated to the biggest player. Insurance is heavily regulated, heavy, complicated. It is not for the for the faint of heart. I could go on and on and on because if you think captains are strange, try the difference between admitted carriers, non-admitted carriers, alien, uh, foreign. I mean, there's just so many different types of insurance. And I haven't even started talking about difference between property, casualty, life, and health. I mean, it's a wild area of regulation. But the consequence of this hyper-complicated regulation is that there's just no clear winner. So the, 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 the manifestation is a, a, a really entrepreneurial area where you see new players come to light all the time. And the captive industry is simply the single most entrepreneurial area within all of insurance because it's where normal Joe Lowe's like you and me with a you know, mid-market company can say, all right, I'm going to start betting on myself. So I haven't had a claim in five years. Why am I enriching AIG? Why am I enriching State Farm? Why am I enriching travelers? I'm going to take that risk in-house and um, I'll keep all those profits from me. My insurance broker doesn't like me anymore, but you know what? I didn't get up this morning for my insurance broker. And that, that mindset is so empowered. I don't think there's anything else like it. There's no ability to become your own, at least as, as, as far as I'm aware. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. But I don't think you have that power over in the banking sector. This is a uniquely powerful weapon that allows people to get into the game of risk and it really from there, I mean, I have seen some captives go gangbusters. Um, have you ever heard of the, uh, insurance company, Allstate? By name? Yeah, they used to be a captive to Sears and Roebuck. So there are some examples of captive insurance companies that have grown very very well, taking a lot of risk and, uh, have made a lot of money for people. I honestly think that Sears never should have sold all estate, but I wasn't in charge of Sears at the time. So uh, yeah. I guess they have to live in that way.
0: Yeah. Help me understand maybe by comparing with banking. So you're saying that insurance has become non oligopolistic very pluralistic, and that's because the regulation, which is heavy, is mostly done by states or by small domiciles. Right. How does that lead to that different structure compared to banking? Because, you know, in the naive view, you could assume that sort of very permissionless, pluralistic markets, they're kind of characterized by very low regulation.
1: So I like to think of insurance and banking as two sides of the same coin. Banking is all about lending. Uh, that's where they make their money. Insurance is the opposite. They get their money up front and then they earn interest on the investments. And then anything they do not pay out in claims, they get the key. But they both start off with a pot of cash because in banking, the business is to lend. So if you go and hand them $100 and put that into your checking account, you may then ask them for a $1,000 loan. So they better have a statutory minimum amount of capital there. But wait, there's more. The fractional banking system means that they can lend out way more than they necessarily have like on hand. So they can be upside down, at least on paper. So you have to have minimum solvency standards, likewise with insurance companies. What are the odds that you have like a whole bunch of claims that render you insolvent? Well, the maximum probable loss is different from the maximum possible loss. And that's a discussion we have with the the regulators all the time. It's like, what is the statutory, reasonable statutory minimum capital? And then if that number is too high, they'll get reinsurance to put that down, or we can bring in surplus notes. There's various ways that we can, we can knock that number down by having others bring in uh, some risk sharing abilities. But fundamentally speaking, um, banking and insurance start off the same place. It's a corporation, with a bank account that has a special license and you have to have a whole bunch of money in the bank to get started.
0: The bank lends money out. The insurance company takes risk in. Got it. Um, And, and you, but why again, does it lead to this sort of pluralistic market, right? So, um, and try, I'm trying to put it together, right? Because um, when you have a lot of competition for domiciles and the domiciles are expected to provide regulations, right? Because that's something the market wants, that's clarity. So um, you would think that um, you that gives you to an optimum amount of regulation, right? So it gets you to, right? So it's sort of high enough. So you combat enough of fraud or whatever bad actors. Also, you have a good reputation. But it's also low enough so you're able to do business to a reasonable amount, right? So you're saying in insurance, um, it is kind of at the optimum, which is a very high level of regulation. Is that right? So I love that thought process. I uh, have not said exactly
1: who has the best regulations. I think the general scheme of insurance has precluded monopolies. And that. that checks all my priors because I, I am skeptical of a lot of power in the hands of a few. I would not necessarily agree that we have the optimal amount of regulation around insurance. And I don't even know what that is. Uh, I would have to really think about what specific regulations I'd want to see for a brand new domicile. I'll say this. uh, You are thinking about it the right way. You should think about it like an economist. Uh, The most correct thing Ronald Reagan ever said is that there's a thing called the Laffer Curve. And... The lower your tax uh, um, uh, rate, the higher the, the economic productivity of a nation state. And it's absolutely true. What he didn't say is that that, that, uh, that marginal uh, utility declines to zero at some point. So there is value in having some tax base. Now, maybe, maybe we could debate where it is. Uh, and and on, the, on the opposite end, there is a point at which you just tax the hell out of everyone to the point where there's no marginal utility. There's going to be no more free stuff coming. So on one end, a certain amount of tax has no more return. And on the other end, a certain amount of no tax uh, has no more corresponding benefit to the GDP. So within there, somewhere is where we need to be seeking a balance. Likewise, when you, when you start talking about insurance regulation, that is exactly how you need to be thinking about it. It's not a philosophical government good, government bad, this law good, this law bad. It's, okay, what are we trying to do? I mean, fundamentally keep money out of the hands of terrorists, make sure there's no money laundering, make sure there's no fraud, keep these things, solve it because, and this is very important, the people who are uh, uh, getting claims need that money, okay? They sign a contract and some of these claims are, are no joke, all right? I mean, it's not all just, you know, some mid-market business with, you know, some property damage. No, I mean, you could very well have a workers' compensation claim where some of there are their so... If there's no money for that, that means that some poor claimant uh, is up the creek. And I find that to be uh, uh, something that, that merits uh, a lot of scrutiny. We need to make sure that those kinds of uh, people are able to get the, the just compensation that they deserve. And the same is true for medical and health practice, whether you're talking about uh, a bridge collapses and kills a whole bunch of people. like I mean, these are the kinds of risks that, that are suitable for captives. They're very expensive. They're relatively rare, but we do need to make sure that the 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 funds, the capital, is there. And there's ways to and there's ways to do that. There's ways to do that. I would say the the two opposite extremes that I see are you know the New York California way over regulation. I I I do not love either scheme. I I find New York uh, to be just very difficult to work with. I do not pretend to understand its ins and outs, and I actively try not to incorporate anything in New York. California. Um, yeah, it's also difficult to do this in California. I mean, I just, I, I, I don't know what to make of that. Then you got some other states where, I mean, it's like you can accidentally get licensed there and you wonder like, geez, op's, oh like, I mean, something goes wrong around here. <laughs> oh, my God. feels like the regulators asleep at the switch and I won't mention which states those are because I do business there, but, but there, there are some situations where you, you, do, you do question things. Um, the, the balance to me is the regulator needs to find a way of promoting the domicile in a way that is attractive to new captive business while also ensuring that nobody gets hurt.
0: And that is tough to do. Yeah. Yeah. And the related question is also around what's the expectations on the regulator, right? Or on the institution kind of providing the service, right? So you you might think, all right, it's not only the regulator's responsibility to make sure bad things are happening, right? So take the example of like the US dollar or like any national fiat currency, again, to stick with the banking analogy, right? So. You know, obviously, terrorist groups are using US dollars, but no one is holding like the Federal Reserve accountable for it, right? So um, it's not that for every product or every technology that you're necessarily responsible to provider of it is not necessarily responsible for the evil things it does, right? So same for like knives, for example, right? It's um, or guns for that matter, right? So these are technology. The question is, who's responsible for the bad that it's caused, right? And that's also a question I have around insurance, right? Because, um, you know, as a jurisdiction, you need to think about reputation right? So you can't do things to attract bad people. Otherwise, you're not going to take off the ground, get off the ground, right? But at the same time, I would also try to make a case for how can we make it easy for like good actors um, to, to use it, right? And sort of make them liable for every abuse that's happening with the stuff that they're doing, right?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, they, they, they definitely do a lot of screening on the front end for individual actors. I mean, every application's got background checks and you know, that sort of thing. Um, but where I think there's opportunities here for someplace like Prospero is to count the systemic risk of something like the Federal Reserve. Because they, they, they are not, uh, as far as I can tell, I don't think they, they answer to anyone. I think they're they're uh, the independent executive agency. Uh, so as a consequence, you do have uh, the the risk that you know they just print uh, the dollar into oblivion. And I don't pretend to be a monetary um, uh, policy genius. So that's that's not my field. But there's no doubt that inflation is a real problem. Uh, it has been really since uh, they started printing money. Uh, I would argue as far back as TARP with Bush, but definitely toward the end of the Trump administration and then all with the Biden administration. We've just been struggling with uh, the, the evap- evaporation of the dollar. So then uh, Bitcoin should rescue you, right? Well, it is extremely difficult to get um, Bitcoin to be accepted as a modicum of exchange in uh, traditional um, captive insurance domiciles. Um, there are some reasons behind that. The NAIC, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners does not um, consider it uh, an admitted asset so if you need to have $100,000 in the bank, like I said earlier, uh, they will disregard Bitcoin. And that comes from uh, some rules, in the AICPA, uh, looking at uh, Bitcoin as an intangible asset. There's a lot of uh, insurance counting behind that. I, I just simply disagree with that. I think there's uh, there's a lot of variability to Bitcoin. And it, it probably should be treated uh, differently than dollars, pounds, one, uh but I don't necessarily think that it should be quarantined. It strikes me that it's it is a uh, it is an asset that is here to stay. So whether you liked it or not, it is a viable means of exchange. It's increasingly popular. It's got a long way to go. I don't think the average people are using it yet. I think uh, it's 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 roller coaster is annoying. Which creates some real problems. Again, if your statutory minimum capital is hundred thousand dollars, put a hundred grand of Bitcoin in there. Well, tomorrow it's now worth fifty. That's that's not a joke. You do have to figure out ways around that. But there are ways around it with other assets. There are plenty of other assets that uh, some variability uh, commodities uh, or futures are, are are purchased by insurance companies all the time. And there's and there's discounts that you can put onto these things. So there is a time to make Bitcoin a a, a legitimate part of Insurance ecosystem, and that to me is one of the um, uh, uh, opportunities that something like Prosper can bring to the market. Where if you have a fully integrated crypto uh, monetary system in with the insurance uh, ecosystem, then you you have a, a wildly different place than anywhere else in the world. the The concern I would have with Bitcoin is. Um, it does have, uh, the, much like the cannabis industry uh, and uh, adult entertainment still has some black hat operators in there. I think it's responsible for us to identify uh, that problem uh, and uh, directly address it. Um, I think the anonymity uh, that is so valued by a lot of the people who exist in cryptocurrency space uh, has to go away. Uh, and there's some very uh, good reasons behind that too. Uh, it's very easy with life insurance policies to to send money uh, wherever the hell you want. And when you start talking about an international monetary domicile, uh, there are actors in the market who would love to get their hands on assets and purchase weapons and, and hurt people. So we need to be aware those people are are, are real. Uh, and that, uh, that reality would require us to, you know, really have to do a lot of due diligence on the front end. But that due diligence can be done. Um, I don't think it's... Uh, it's it's unreasonable. It just means that the, the Bitcoin cryptocurrency space, you know, those who wish to get involved in um, the insurance industry need to be aware that the anonymity uh, is going to have to go away so that we can comply with OFAC and uh, other uh, um, uh, Interpol uh, uh, regulations. That being said, uh, I don't want to be too negative on it uh, because Bitcoin is just... It's huge. Uh, I don't know how much. I mean, how much Bitcoin is there in the world? Uh, like, what's the aggregate value of Bitcoin right right now?
0: Uh, good question. Last like, time I checked, was like five hundred billion. So, but I think it's go, going up again. Okay. Well, let's 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 assume
1: it's five hundred billion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That means that there's five hundred billion dollars of assets on the sidelines because, for the most part, crypto is just not being used. It's certainly not being used by any of the major banks for anything that actually matters. Um, there may be a handful of transactions here and there. I know MetLife purchased like 180 million dollars worth of Bitcoin sitting on their balance sheet, and good for that. I think uh, um, Elon Musk purchased some Bitcoin or or Dogecoin as like as a hedge, and that's that's nice, you know, that's nice. But that's that's not opening it up. Opening up the insurance markets to use Bitcoin as part of a diverse asset uh, asset uh, um, allocation strategy is going to get Bitcoin off the sideline, and that's 500 billion dollars worth of assets that could collateralize. New insurance companies insuring everything from uh, cannabis to workers' comp to medical medical practicals to directors and officers' liability, your inland marine insurance policies. I mean, literally, this, the sky's the limit. And the return's fantastic. Return on equity for uh, a good reinsurer should be about uh, 14% and even much higher than that for captive insurance companies. So the return on, on equity for Bitcoin is not all that great. I mean, let's be realistic here. That roller coaster is mostly paper money or people trading amongst themselves like they're trading trading cards. So as soon as you unleash Bitcoin into the 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 the, the, the formal financial services markets, that's going to reduce that 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 roller coaster. Now, I get a lot of traders are, are you know probably having heart attacks. but I don't care about the traders. That, that's speculation. That's not what Bitcoin was made for. Bitcoin was made to be used and one of the best places to use it is as collateral for new startup programs that are looking to ensure avant-garde risks.
0: A collateral for new startup programs to ensure avant-garde risk. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a bit more um, what opportunities you see not only for domiciles like Prosper, but also for startups? You said before that's very challenging for insure tech. Right, and that's some of the things like the regulations around like capital requirements or something like that are not always wise to remove. Um, so how can, um, you know, young founders um, want to do startups? What would be um, a good place to enter or what are solutions that they need to build? Right? Because that's kind of my bias as a VC. You know, many of them or most of these ideas are bad and don't work out. But occasionally there's one that's really, really good, right? And by sending many startups to the starting line, we're more likely to get much you know, stuff that doesn't work, but also some that make it really big and can really fundamentally change things.
1: Uh, with insurance, it's always, it's always wise to go where people are complaining the most. So you. your traditional areas of complaints are in cyber insurance, uh, directors and officers, liability, any form of professional liability, uh, and in these days, commercial property. You go try to get a quote for property insurance in, in the state floor, it's too. So those are the areas that need the solutions. The solutions are complex. So uh, protecting uh, a computer from cyber uh, 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 attack is going to be completely different than writing a medical malpractice policy, completely different from directors and officers' liability for a temp company based on of floor. I mean, it's just, I mean, so you really need to understand the asset class, but where I think if you're looking for like the, like the biggest problem, I was just talking about it, collateral so when I put together an insurance program at the end of the day, when an actuary comes back, it's going to say, okay, yeah. you know, you got $4 million in gross written premium. And you're happy about that because you were paying five, you were paying six, but in order to put that program together, I'm to need some serious client. I need a million, million buys, something like that. Oh, we need to go get some reinsurance. But if I had access to uh, a good capital, Bitcoin, as an example, uh, and we could even overglack it and they will discount Bitcoin by 50% to accommodate for the, the variability in price. Now we have something different, and you can, issue, uh, you can issue the Bitcoin in the form of what's called a surplus note, and we can get you there 14%. Surplus notes generally go between 12 and 15% right now, all in. So that's, that's a, a huge opportunity to market. You don't even need prosper. That's just an area where the Bitcoin people on the sidelines have an opportunity. The problem is without, without regulatory approval, uh, that's, I mean, you're, you're asking for an to have to Congress each and every time with prosper. Is the ability to create an ecosystem where new, new, uh, uh, programs can come. Uh, you get, you know, this new innovative way of pricing risk in, uh, you know, and for some weirdo asset class, you know, you're doing a good job over there. And then all of a sudden you have access to this pool of capital over here at 14%. You got yourself all the collateral you need for a new insurance program. That's a huge opportunity. I mean, I'll tell you right now, 50 or 60% of the, of the feasibility studies die. When it comes time to say, okay, and now where's the money coming from?
0: Fantastic. Um, Matthew, is really, really enlightening and again, also to Prospera. So at the time of the release of this episode, it's only just a week until the Crypto X Legal Summit, right? Legal crypto futures and legal engineering, where we talk about exactly things like that, sort of how we can you know use crypto or Bitcoin to solve problems, right? And. Also, how we can use it to be sort of underlying or underpinning much of the traditional financial system, um, and also sort of the legal or jurisdictional engineering that's required for it. Right? Sort of what's that sort of optimal amount of regulation? How can we iterate around it, and how can different models look like? Where we kind of selecting for the best practices while staying reasonable, but also without overburdening um, startups and new businesses to regulation. Um, is there anything else in that context um, that you feel is, uh, that you feel should mention to take listeners on that journey with us?
1: You know, if if you're if you're going to be hanging out with a lot of VCs and people with with interest in in, in crypto, uh, a a domicile that is crypto friendly, that is digital forward is going to be very popular in the marketplace. It will attract some of the best businesses that there are. The uh, the reality is that crypto is just, is, it, it is not the, the backseat uh, that, that it used to be. There are professionals in there now. Um, and the reinsurance markets are hard, hard as a rock. Hard means very expensive. Uh, like hard money, same sort of thing. So hard reinsurance markets. So there are uh, uh, legacy programs that are looking for solutions and problems are popping up all over the place. Fairly recently, there was an explosion, something called Vestu. It, uh, uh, very long story short. A lot of their money that has collateral in the form of a letter of credit turned out not to be there. There's an explosion. And uh, a lot of programs were immediately impacted. It would have been phenomenal. Yeah, if the, the, the your network could have said, oh, you need $50 million real quick. Okay, well, we'll take 20%. And they would have paid it. They would have paid it because I'd much rather pay you $10 million a year for your 50 than lose my $300 million a year insurance program. That's a that's that's a stupid thing to lose, especially if all I have to do is just pay you 20%. And that's exactly what the big reinsurers did. They came in at much higher than 20%. Much, much higher than 20%. And the the opportunity just wasn't there because the regulatory environment just isn't there. So until you have that ecosystem built, those kinds of opportunities just continue to go to legacy players, many of whom are in Europe, many of whom have been rich for hundreds of years. All of whom are slow and boring, and, and just are not uh, are facing the proper competition from twenty uh, first century business models.
0: Fantastic! This is really um, encouraging, uh, Matthew. Any how can listeners find your work or engage with your work? Anything you want to draw attention to that you're that you're doing right now, or looking for help with, or collaborations with?
1: You can find me any day uh, on Twitter, um, Matthew Queen eighty four. I'm. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I mean, occasionally, like I get the, the notifications on my phone, but Twitter's the best place to find me. Um, I'm weak on TikTok. I do have a TikTok. I, I put a few out there. I need to get more diligent on that, especially since I uh, I don't know if t- uh, how much longer Twitter's going to be around. If they start charging for money, I don't know if I'm for that. Um, and then beyond that, um, feel free to reach out to me at matthew@thequeenfirm.com. At you can email me anytime. And I'm happy to
0: Matthew, what a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Bye. Bye.